All right, uh, would you join me in prayer, please? God, we lift up this time to you. We thank you for your word, for its message of hope, um, for, for the change that you bring. God, I pray in this time that you you speak through your word, that you speak into our hearts. God, that you um, help us better grasp your, um, your actions that you've done for us, your plans for us. Um, and that, yeah, you just give us hope for this coming season. Uh, please just work through me um, in this time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, good morning. So today we're going to kick off, as Mark just said, the first in our series of four messages of the Advent series. Um, as Mark said, kind of as long as I've been here, we've always celebrated Advent with a series of messages focused on the same text, but through the lens of hope, peace, joy, and love. And today I'm going to start just with a focus on the topic of hope. Um, and before getting into the text, I just want to spend some time reflecting on this theme of hope and contrast it with the other Advent themes. What is hope? We generally use hope to describe a desire for something good, um, either in the future or in the current state. And one thing I find interesting about it is, at least as we typically use the word, hope um, of has some reminiscence or there's some kind of like unpleasant thing that underlies it which stands in contrast to the other advent themes we'll get into next week of peace joy and love and what i mean by that is that there's some prerequisites or ingredients for what makes hope necessary typically when we say that we hope for something one things can't be perfect something is wrong with the current circumstance and we're looking for that to be changed. Um, two, things could be better. We can actually comprehend some sort of possible outcome or state of the world that would be better than what we currently have. What's, what we need is we have to be able to wrap our minds around that possible state of the world occurring, even if it's really unlikely. Normally when we use the word hope, there's always this element of uncertainty. There's some element that's left out of our control, whether that's looking to someone or something to provide help. There's always this element of not really knowing whether what we hope for might actually happen. And in contrast, I don't think these other three Advent themes that we'll talk about, uh, peace, joy, and love, require these same types of prerequisites. They seem like really good things in themselves, right? At the outset of creation before the fall, like I think, I believe that in that time there was peace, things were good. Um, there was joy, Adam and Eve and creation were happy and there was love, God's creation, man. Um, they were all in the presence of God and the presence of that love. But was there hope at that time or was there even a need for hope? So we're in the season of Advent, and it's a time of waiting and joyful hope for the coming Messiah. Um, 
And as we lead up to Christmas, we celebrate and reflect on the hope that the people had for Jesus' first coming. And we also reflect on, yearn for, and hope for Jesus' second coming. And that must mean that for us now, something isn't quite right. Uh, Hope, this desire for something better, uh, is, it's fundamental and foundational to the Christian and for Advent. So today I just want to reflect about maybe what's not right. It could be a lot of things. Uh, The text in the context of today will illustrate how the passage was a beacon of hope for the people at that time in terms of a promise for a future kingdom, laws, and a leader, and that it's still a beacon of hope for us today. So my plan for the day, since I'm lucky and get to present first on Isaiah 11, 1 through 9, I get to give you historical context, and then everyone else who wanted to do that later on, too bad. Um, But yeah, I want to give some context for where we are in the text. Second, um, we'll want to illustrate how the text gave hope for these better leaders, government, and society to the people, and how it also stands as that beacon of hope for us. And finally, I want to encourage us in the hope of God and how it differs from this worldly hope that I just talked about. So, first, some context. The main point of this is just going to be to illustrate that things weren't perfect, things that are not, things aren't perfect right now. So, we're a bit farther away or farther along in history than where we left off last week. As a church, we're going through the book of Genesis, or parts of it last week. Daniel Thompson presented on this genealogy from, I think, Seth to Noah, and if you missed it, you should go listen to it. It was pretty awesome. And since then, I want to give a nod to these three really pivotal events that happened between Genesis and where we are in Isaiah. These three events are um, specific covenants that God made between himself and others. A covenant, if you haven't heard the term, is kind of similar to a contract or an agreement. It's a binding agreement between two parties, at least, where they work together toward a common goal. And I think what's kind of different between the covenants and contracts is they were deeply relational. They were personal, and the consequences of breaking these covenant agreements were severe. So the three covenants, just to highlight, are known as, one, the Abrahamic covenant. This was between God and Abraham. It's described in Genesis 12. And this is where Abraham agrees to go and leave his home, leave his family, and follow God in return for God making him into a great nation, and all the people of the earth will be blessed. So the Abrahamic covenant promises this realm and a people for God's kingdom. Second, the next covenant, the Mosaic covenant, was between God and Moses. Uh, In Exodus 19, It says, Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And along with this, there's further promises and warnings are provided. In Deuteronomy 28, God's people are told to diligently obey the Lord and keep his commands and 
Then, if so, he would set his people high above all the nations of the earth and bless them. But on the contrary, there is a warning. If they do not obey the Lord, then there would be associated curses to the people, the cities, the country, their food, their offspring, their labor, their health, their politics. The Mosaic Covenant provided this law and a framework for God's people. And then the third, uh, the, known as the Davidic Covenant, was between God and David, where God promises a descendant of King David to reign on the throne over the people of God in perpetuity forever, and provides this promise of a king and a ruler. So, kind of setting the context here, we have these three covenants. God's people have this expectation for a kingdom in their people, an expectation of a law and governance and how things should look, and an expectation of a ruler, and all of these things are associated with these blessings and good life. However, throughout the Old Testament, you'll see that God's people instead go through these perpetual cycles of sin and disobedience, punishment, and then reconciliation. So first they start off in a place of blessing and privilege, and then whether it's through overt sins or through neglect, they find themselves entering into periods of sinfulness and rebellion against God by breaking his commandments, not following him or forgetting about him. This is then followed by a period of correction from God, where as he promises in that Mosaic Covenant, God's people are conquered or oppressed until they turn back to God. And when they turn back to him and repent, he delivers them and they return, at least temporarily, to a place of good standing. And so, prior to this text that was just read in Isaiah 11, we find that God's people are, in their situation, bears almost no resemblance to the good promises that these covenants had, and instead they're stuck in the midst of one of these cycles. When it comes to a kingdom for God's people at the time, they were actually fractured into like a northern and southern kingdom as a result of civil war that followed um, after King Solomon's rule. So they were far from this united kingdom at the time. With respect to the law, the people were far from God's ideals also. So in Isaiah chapter 1, it starts off right away by just calling out God's people as a sinful nation whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, and children given to corruption. And in chapter 10, immediately preceding our text for this morning, there's a list of woes really specific to Israel because of their deviations from God's law. So in 10, uh, Isaiah 10, verses 1 through 3, um, it reads, Woe to those who make unjust laws, to those who issue oppressive decrees to deprive the poor of their rights, and withhold justice from the oppressed people, making widows their prey, and robbing the fatherless. So, in terms of laws, they're also far from God's ideal at this time. And then with respect to the promised ruler in that Davidic covenant, not only was the kingdom fractured and under different rules, but chapter 10 foretells God's tool of correction against Israel, um, which would be through the Assyrians. So, um, Isaiah 10 describes what ends up being in history about a 40-year period of Assyrian siege and conquest of Israel. God 
what allows people to be subjugated to a different ruler, um, not even under his people. And the Syrians in chapter 10 are described as um, then to seize, uh, loot, snatch and plunder and trample God's people down like mud in the streets. And just some historical context, as the, at that time as nations conquered, a common practice was to, to maintain their power after conquering people was to um, exile or deport the residents, right? Just because if you isolate people within larger population groups, um, this would minimize their likelihood of resistance among people, um, kind of assimilate them, they've lost their culture, they've lost their God. Um, so the Syrians would spread their deportees into these new regions, and as a result, the people just would lose their standing and identity as the separate kingdom. So it's quite a grim picture that Isaiah 10 is painting of the situation. Um, Isaiah 10 ends with this really grim picture. There's only this promise of some remnant that remains, but it says destruction has been decreed and carried out upon the whole land. And even then, right, sometimes we're like, oh, well, maybe we'll be okay under the Syrians. Um, chapter 10 then says that even the Syrians, who seemed so mighty in their conquests against Israel, also describes them as being destroyed like lofty trees being felled or a forest thicket being cut down by an axe. So even their time has come there. So kind of the picture we see painted is this God's people have been through this really hard time um, and even their conquerors are then cut down and we have this image of like this chopped down forest kind of destruction it looks pretty bad maybe picture highway 50 if you've driven up there since the fires um, but so I bring this all up to highlight just that the prerequisites for hope that we had talked about before those are all there right things are far 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 from perfect what could be imagined by God's people through the covenants for this kingdom, this law, this ruler for the people are really far off. And we're left off with this image of destruction and uncertainty. And we can pause here. We can also reflect upon our current circumstance if it's like this at all. Hopefully things are not as, as dire for you as is going on in here. But... Similarly, we, I think, all kind of yearn for this sort of like better society, and maybe we're not quite there yet. But that's the context for what's then described in chapter 11. So in the midst of this kind of like chopped down forest land where kind of it's quite barren, we read in 11.1, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. And so this is like a very like first sign of hope, right? This is a nod first to the Davidic covenant. Um, Jesse was the father of David. So this links directly back to that. Um, people are like, oh, we've been under this rule for a while, but look, um, we have this promise of out of all this mess, God's promises are gonna be coming true. And then what we'll see in 11 is that this is a description of Jesus, and it's going to paint a really different picture of the type of ruler, law, and kingdom that really stands in a stark contrast to what the people have been experiencing. 
And this Jesus described in chapter 11 provides a beacon of hope to the people at that time. But also that picture painted should also continue to provide hope for us, for, for us, because for us, we're looking towards that second coming. And also in this text, we can consider the transforming power that Jesus has already had in our lives, that some of these things that are maybe not yet coming to full fruition are still having their place in our lives. So, yeah, so I'm just going to contrast Jesus' rule, governance, and kingdom with what was going on at the time. And kind of this first topic is considering Jesus as a ruler versus the Syrians described in chapter 10. So I'm just going to read some select passages from Isaiah 10, 8 through 14, that describes the mindset of the Syrian king and the invaders that um, God's people were under at the time. So the Syrian king says, Are not my commanders all kings? As my hand seized the kingdoms of the idols, kingdoms whose images excelled those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not deal with Jerusalem and her images as I dealt with Samaria and her idols? And the Syrian king says, By the strength of my hand I have done this, and by my wisdom, because I have understanding. I removed the boundaries of nations. I plundered their treasures. Like a mighty one, I subdued their kings. As one reaches into a nest, so my hand reached for wealth of nations. As people gathered abandoned eggs, so I gathered all the countries. And so that's the mindset of the Assyrian king. And just want to contrast this with the description that we have of Jesus, of this Messiah in 11, 2 through 3, where it says, The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the Spirit of counsel and of might, the Spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And so, just in comparing these two passages of, I guess, this worldly Assyrian king, versus what we have described of Jesus. Just the big difference I noticed there is this reliance on self, right? So one thing that's interesting is the attributes of strength, wisdom, and understanding are ascribed to the Syrians and to Jesus. However, for the Syrian, all these accolades are just self-proclaimed, while for Jesus, these attributes make their way to him through the Spirit of the Lord, coming not from the self, but from God. The additional attributes the Syrian gives himself are all centered around, in my opinion from reading it, just greed and vanity. He describes how he has seized kingdoms, how he has reached out and grabbed things. And in contrast, the attributes of Jesus are, kind of similar to what I already said, they're humble, they're focused on serving others. We hear a spirit of counsel, counsel for advising others, a spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord, again focused outward towards God, um, a delight in the fear of the Lord, and the kind of understanding the relationship and role that he has with God and the Father. And so, I don't know, I think this is, this is just cool because as we reflect on who Jesus is um, and the hope in that type of leader, it I don't know, it just sounds better to me. <laughs> 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 
For, in terms of contrasting Jesus' governance with the implementation of the law at that time, I'll just read again from chapter 10 and 11. And so in 10 verse 1, to illustrate what people were experiencing at that time, again, remember it said, Woe to those who make unjust laws, to those who issue oppressive decrees, to deprive the poor of their rights and withhold justice from the oppressed of my people, making widows their prey and robbing the fatherless. So at that time, we've got unjust laws, oppressive decrees, kind of the poor and downtrodden not being treated right. Contrast that with Jesus' governance described starting in 11 verse 3. It says, He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lip, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness a sash around his waist. So instead of making unjust laws or issuing oppressive decrees or allowing lawlessness under the rule of other nations, Jesus issues discipline in his words and is upheld by righteousness and faithfulness. Instead of depriving the poor of their rights and withholding justice from the oppressed, he will judge the needy with righteousness and with justice give decisions for the poor of the earth. Instead of allowing continued predatory practices on the vulnerable, he slays the wicked with the breath of his lips. So it's stark contrast between kind of the law and governance of the time and what Jesus is to bring. And the last block of the text that we have in 11 through verses 1 through 9, I don't have anything really to compare to the past chapter, but um, the text paints a really unbelievable picture of the rule associated with Christ's second coming and what we may hope for. I'll just read it again. It says, The wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, the young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither destroy, harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Yeah, it's really a pretty unbelievable picture of a rule associated with Christ's second coming where we have predatory, carnivorous, or just dangerous animals described as being docile enough to live in harmony and close proximity to the most fragile members of society. And what this points to is just under Christ's rule, like there's a shift in the nature of nature, just a shift in the nature of beings, um, a transformation that we can look forward to there. So I think like the people of the past, we're still hoping for better leaders, laws, and a kingdom and society to live in. 
You know, with regard to leaders, we just finished up our season of elections. What were your hopes going to that season? Do you have any positive expectations um, from the leaders that were elected? Like, what hopes had you placed in them? What do you think is going to happen? Um, with regard to the laws, I don't know, what, which measures or propositions did you vote for? Which were you hoping were going to pass? What do we think is going to come from that? And with regard to kingdom and society, what are your hopes for that? You know, I work for, I work for state government, and I think since we're in Sacramento, maybe a lot of folks here may also work for state, local, or federal government in some capacity or deal with that. And I don't know, I think it helps bring a bit more nuanced perspective to this idea of a hope for better leaders, laws, and a society. Many of us are directly involved in these things, actually, that we've been talking about. For some of you, you might actually be the ones, if you've been there long enough, um, issuing these decrees to create these laws. For some of us, myself included, um, I'm involved in kind of like the writing or implementation of laws. A lot of these that have factors that are deciding for the poor and needy. At my workplace, we hold um, these monthly board meetings where members of the public can come. They comment on regulations that are very boring, but uh, anyway, actually they're not boring. They're very important, but anyway, whatever. This month, like, we were considering this proposal that would decrease emissions of air contaminants from locomotives, and kind of along with all these meetings, there's always hours and hours of testimony from both sides that are for and against, but I was really struck by the, the many like hours of testimony that happened for people who would come and say things like, you know, we're placing all our hope on you, um, your only hope, the health of my family, all our lives, um, like everything, we're placing this in your hands because you're the only one that can help us. Um, many of you might have similar experiences in your professions, whether it's in public service, medicine, law, education, I don't know, retail, like some of them is placing their hope in you or your behavior to improve their life in somehow. Uh, but I think the ultimate reality that is as we over and over place our hope in these things that these human institutions, these human intentions often fail. Our, our hope is tenuous. As we've said before, it's always paired with some uncertainty, right? Will these leaders live up to what was promised? Will this organization implement all its rules perfectly? Um, or will we just get bogged down with kind of these implementation problems, budgets, timelines, I don't know, things like that? Um, will the society that we hope for materialize? And I think this is the difference between this worldly hope that we see and the Christian hope. And the last thing I want us to consider is that um, the hope that's offered to us in Isaiah 11 is, is different. Namely, it is like the specific idea of uncertainty. Um, the Christian hope is not the same type we place in our worldly leaders and our laws and society that hope that's often wishful and uncertain and fails us. On the contrary, the hope provided in Isaiah 11 
And the hope we have in God is one that we should expect should happen, one that should be, we should be certain of. Right? From the text itself, you've heard, like it said, that when you see words or themes repeated, you should pay attention. And if you take a look at these verses in this chapter, what word shows up the most? I, I think it's actually the word will. Um, it shows up, I think, at least 20 times in these nine verses describing that the Messiah will do something, or is, this is how his kingdom will behave. Um, there's certainty in the promises of God. We've, we've seen evidence of that um, in many places that God comes through in his promises throughout the Old Testament, um, right? And then even last year, many times before, we've, during Advent, we've gone through the genealogy of Jesus. We've had this historical documentation of kind of what is said actually did come true in terms of being through the lineage of David. He's fulfilled these numerous prophecies. Uh, he's illustrated that the Spirit of the Lord was with him as he came to care for the poor and the needy. And for these future items that haven't yet come to fruition in this chapter, uh, descriptions of kind of the fully transformed nature of animals, let's say, um, or kind of slaying the wicked with his tongue, these things that maybe we hope for we haven't come yet, we can still be certain that Jesus will follow through. And as it says in Hebrews 10.23, we need to hold unswervingly to that hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. And that's the hope that we reflect on and lean on during Advent when we celebrate Jesus' first coming and await his second coming. But I guess the last thing I want to say is just what about the now? Like we have this look back in the past that we can think about in terms of Jesus' first coming and be very excited about that. That's what we focus on a lot in Christmas time. We have this future looking to the future where we don't know when that's going to happen. We can be certain of God's promises. But how do we see or apply these passages in our lives now? Like, what are we doing in the kind of that in between the first and second coming? So, you know, while in verses 1 through 5 of Isaiah 11, we're kind of strictly looking at Jesus' attributes as this ruler and his governance. Um, verses 6 through 9, if we look at it kind of metaphorically, it's something that we can actually begin to see the workings of even now. Right? So through the word that Jesus, through the work that Jesus accomplished at his first coming, his death and resurrection, when we accept Jesus as our Savior and when we follow him, there's a transformation in our lives that will flow out to others. The gospel has the power to transform those who were once these predators and dangerous creatures into those that are gentle and seeking the best for humanity. Right? Consider Paul as an example. Consider yourself. While you might not have, you might not have been a carnivore or predator, like, think about the changes God has brought into your life. Right? We see this written in the Old and New Testament as well. 
In 2 Corinthians 5.17 it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. These changes are already happening. In Ezekiel 36.26, God says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. You know, it's my strong hope that we see this transformation of our natures now and that it begins permeating through our society. You know, as a parent, I think more and more about the leopards, lions, bears of the society a lot more than I used to. Um, As I was reading this, this reminded me, Clement Clement started kindergarten this year, and early in the year, he told me that they were going to have a lockdown drill, and I was like, how do you talk about a lockdown drill with kindergartners? Um, But he told me about it, and it made perfect sense, you know? Like, the school is in Midtown, it's very close to the zoo, and you need to be prepared in case the lion escapes from the zoo. Um, You need to be quiet, you need to hide in your classroom so the lion doesn't find you. And that's what I was reminded about when I read this passage, right? The wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and the little child will lead them. You know, if you look at the news, things don't look like they're getting better. These events, they're more and more common every day. But, and I too have hopes in our worldly institutions to contribute towards helping in that regard. But I know too that the leaders and the laws we have won't fix all these problems at their heart because they lie in the heart, they lie in the nature. And we need God to change the heart. And so, while we're here, while we're not fully at this kind of like realized world of the second coming, like, I know that we do serve and have a God who can transform, who in the now, working through Jesus, is transforming people in that way and so even now kind of in addition to that hope for the second coming I think in this time of Advent as we reflect on that we can really just also have this hope and be confident in what God is doing kind of like today and right now and for that we can be thankful during this Advent season and that's all I have so let me pray God, we thank you for thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, thank you for sending Jesus the first time, because through His work on the cross, it was finished. And we thank you for uh, your promise of the second coming and all that your kingdom will bring there. And God, we thank you that we can hope in your promises and be certain of what you're doing in our lives and the transforming power of your word.
pray for this upcoming holiday Advent season that we just continue to reflect and be thankful for what you provided and your blessings. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're standing. We're, let's stand. Let's go home. Hope. 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 I love how you frame that, William. The um, hope, by definition, requires some something that's missing. So you're looking. encourage everyone um, to, to really take time this, this year, this season, this Advent. Let this Advent time of uh, reflection and consideration uh, be even more than what it has been in the past. That, um, you know, again, as William teased out, uh, we can look back and we can look eschatologically, but we're in 2022. Many respects, it's a dumpster fire. Um, so, how are we living in the midst of that fire, that that stench? That how how are we how are we behaving? Are we behaving in a hopeful um, posture, or is it are we nibbling on our fingernails like the world is? Um, we behave different because we are different in everything that we do, in everything that we do. God, is, as I look across the, the audience, and I, I know you as much as you allow me to know you in the, the areas of you know, where you have influence, you are, again, as William teased out, if we're not careful, uh, we uh, will put our position, we'll put ourselves in the position of savior um, for ourselves, for our families, uh, on our jobs. And as I've shared with you all, and I share again, I can't save me. So there's no hope that I can save you. I, I can't. I, I can't. But I can point you to someone. Uh, I, I, I can. <laughs> I, I'm done. It was just incredible. You probably saw the news where uh, after spending time in a bar, this person that was on a cruise ship ended up in the ocean, the Gulf of, Me the Gulf of Mexico. But for the better part of 18 hours, he was out there treading water. Ship went back. That'll preach. <laughs> ship went back plucked him out. Yeah. Uh, I wonder what was going through his head. Yeah. I thought about it uh, probably about hour two, honey, I'm done. It's just like nobody's coming back. Let's just hurry up and get this over with. 
I really thought that, uh, you know, I, I could swim, I could swim fairly well. 18 hours treading water in the Gulf of Mexico. Waiting. <laughs> what are you hoping for? Where, where's, where's your hope? Where's your, uh, what are you expecting? What are you expecting? Yeah. What are you expecting? Let's bow our heads and hearts. Ah, Father and our God, again, as the song lets us know, our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ and his righteousness. Father, thank you for the messenger. Thank you for the message. Thank you for this season of Advent. Father, give us the wisdom, the, um, the, the, the wherewithal. Father, to really understand to a level that we've never uh, grasped before um, just how awesome and wonderful you are. And Father, you have everything that we're searching for. Everything that we're searching for, you are. You are. You are. You, you are. Not, not you have. You are. Father, you you. you are our peace. You are our joy. You are. You are. You are that great I am. Everything that we look for. Everything. You are. Father, be with us today. Be with us today. Let us be incredible reflective rays of hope to a world that has none and is desperately seeking in stuff and people and situations and but father let us reflect back that bright light of jesus christ be with us this day this week watch over us protect us bring us back as you see fit father just joy in our heart, praises on our lips, how we have overcome. Thank you, Father. It's in Christ's name we pray. Let every heart say, Amen. Greet somebody. Greet somebody. Greet William.